It was about two months ago that Pastor Mitchell let the, the team know that he was going to be gone this Sunday. And so my sermon this morning has been percolating for two months. And if you think for a minute of what's been going on for the last two months in the world, you can imagine some of the thoughts and the prayers and the concerns that have been mixed up in this jumble of preparing to preach. Because you, like I, have assuredly been watching the TV, have been paying attention to the news. You have been assaulted with scenes of wanton destruction in Ukraine. Very probably your blood has run cold in horror at an absolute callous disregard for human life and it seems for every humane feeling. Uh, we have burned with anger at well, as well, observing from afar even uh, the brutalization of women and the terrorization of children. Um, one thing that I've done is every day intentionally make sure that I look in the news to see what's going on in Ukraine because it is easy to forget. The news cycle moves on. There are things going on in our lives. Um, and so last night's news, a, a smart bomb hitting in Odessa yesterday, an apartment building, five more people killed, including a three-month-old child. And that's just one story of hundreds and thousands. It's hard to pray about that because there is the, the cold horror and the hot anger and I have felt hatred in my heart in this situation. And sometimes when we pray, we feel like we ought to wrap up all of the mess of our hearts and our emotions into a pretty little package and be able to bring that before the Lord. But one thing that I'm reminded of and one thing that I, that I try to remind others to do as well is to pray the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is given to us as an example and as a... As a um, an example of worship as well as an example of prayer. And one thing we certainly see is that the psalmist David and the other psalmists do not hesitate to lay out all of their emotions before the Lord. It is a mess sometimes. There is despair and anguish that turns into rejoicing. There is anger and frustration and hopelessness as well as great hope for the future. And sometimes it's all mixed up together, and that's okay because God is big enough to handle our emotions. The fact is he's very well aware of them anyway, whether we voice them or not. We don't have to sort them and then bring them to him. We can bring them to him and let him sort it out. 
One of the things we find when we look to the Psalms as an example is the imprecatory Psalms. If you're not familiar with that term, it's referring to those places in the book of Psalms where, where David in particular actually calls down curses, God's curses, on his enemies where he calls for judgment and condemnation in no uncertain terms. It goes from the fairly innocuous, oh, that you would slay the wicked, to the more personal, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? I hate them with complete hatred. Or Psalm 69, this is pretty strong, do not let them share in your salvation. Maybe they be blotted out of the book of life. Or even May his days be few, may his children be fatherless, may his children be wandering beggars. I don't think it was a coincidence this morning that my devotional took me to Psalm 58, where we read about breaking the teeth of the wicked and the righteous bathing their feet in the blood of the wicked. Harsh words, difficult images, expressing, frankly, what we feel and what we long for. We all feel it, outrage in the face of injustice, horror in the face of the brutality that we observe. Jesus felt it too when he expressed it, when he called down terrible woes on any who would lead the little children astray, or when he drove from the temple those who were abusing the foreigner through their money-changing practices and, and drove them out with great righteous anger. And so we come to God in prayer and, and pray these things as well because it's right there in the Scripture. And I've, I've heard some folks talk about it on their Facebook pages or even in person. I'm praying the imprecatory Psalms against Vladimir Putin. But there's also something about it that has struck me as not quite right, and I've been wrestling with it. The, the, the personal vindictiveness or even vengeance that can be involved in that. I thought to myself, wait a minute. Galatians chapter 3, didn't Jesus take all the curses when he was hung on the tree? Uh, Romans chapter 12. Doesn't Paul tell us to bless our persecutors, bless and do not curse? And so on the one hand, we have very scriptural expression of these outrages that we feel. On the other hand, we have calls to a different ethic and have been struggling with how to balance it all. And one of the places that my prayers and my reading have brought me in the struggle is Matthew chapter 5, and we will read verses 43 through 48. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. These are the great three chapters that we have in which Jesus lays out what it means to be a citizen of the new kingdom that he is establishing. And right there in the middle of this wonderful sermon, we read the following verses, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This admonition comes at the end of a series of very similar paragraphs that start out with Jesus um, contrasting something that the people have seen or heard in the law or in the traditions, contrasting that with his own words that actually get to the heart of the matter. And so many of us are familiar with where Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not murder, that is in the law, but I say, penetrating to the heart of the matter, do not even be angry in your heart. You have heard it said, this is in the law, do not commit adultery, but I say, don't even look lustfully at someone else. And so Jesus going past law or at some points tradition and penetrating to what is going on in the heart of the individual. And so in this case, Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, and it said very clearly in the law, love your neighbor, and it had become one of the traditions of the people, hate your enemy, but he, Jesus, has something else to say. It's real easy to find in the law the admonition to love your neighbor. Jesus himself points it to us. He's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He immediately goes, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, the great saying of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then Jesus goes on to connect the second commandment with that one, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's also a direct quote from the law, from, Deuter from Leviticus 19.18, at the end of a whole series of explanations of how it is that we can love our neighbor well, looking out for his well-being, caring for him in times of difficulty and things like that. It's not difficult to understand. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to follow. When we confess our sins, our idolatries, our shortcomings before the Lord, we are always forced to confess, I have not loved you, Lord, with my whole heart and soul and strength, and I have fallen short in loving my neighbor as myself. It's not easy to follow, but it's easy to understand. It's easy to find in scriptures, you have heard it said, love your neighbor. It's not so easy to find because you don't find it in the scriptures, hate your enemy. That is a saying that became part of the traditions of the people, and it's not difficult to see how it became part of the traditions once you consider the corruption of the human heart and how easy it is for us to take the things that we are supposed to do and turn them into the things that we are not supposed to do. What I'm referring to is the fact that the nation of Israel served as the visible manifestation of God's kingdom and therefore was used by God as an instrument of justice 
was used by God as an instrument of punishment for sin of the nations around them. We first see it very clearly when God is speaking to Abraham and making the promise about Abraham's people returning to the promised land. And he says, but it's going to take 400 years because the sins of the Amorites have not yet been brought to completion. So what's going on here is you have a nation that is going further and further into sin, and God is going to use the people of Israel as punishment, expressing his hatred of the sins of that people by bringing them in and bringing devastation with them. Israel was an instrument of judgment. And when you are used as an instrument of judgment, it's pretty easy to start feeling personally pretty good about yourself and pretty hateful towards other people. And so there developed an ethic and a tradition of hatred towards anything that was foreign, towards anything that would be viewed as an enemy, and it became deeply ingrained. But a personal hatred toward an enemy is not something that God designed or intended. Even in the Old Testament, that is seen. Great example, Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5, where God commands his people to love their enemies, where he says to them, if you see your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. Or if you see the donkey of someone who hates you has fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help him with it. This is speaking of your enemy. This is how an individual is to relate to their enemy. It's really interesting, actually, that in the parallel passage in the book of Deuteronomy, you read almost the exact same words, except instead of enemy, it says brother, pointing out the very thing that Jesus wanted to point out to us, that even someone who we might think of as our enemy is actually our brother and sister, and we should relate to them in that way. And so elsewhere in the Old Testament, we are told if our enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. We are warned not to rejoice in the downfall of our enemy because it is God who is to bring about justice and judgment and not we personally who are to do that. You even see that in the life of King David who wrote the imprecatory psalms calling down God's condemnation on his enemies but at the same time himself was merciful to those who pursued him who did not take justice into his own hands but left justice at the feet of the Lord and waited for that day. So Jesus lays out the law and the tradition. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, and then gets to the heart of the matter and says, but I say, love your enemy. It's not really difficult to outline what this means. Love means love, and enemy means enemy. 
There's no limitation. There's no way that we can describe a certain group of enemies that we're supposed to love, but other really bad people that we don't have to love. In fact, Jesus makes it really clear in the preceding paragraph when he is talking about responding to evil with good, and he outlines three different kinds of evil actions towards us, three different enemies that we can have. The first one is the personal enemy, somebody that you are face-to-face with. This is the person who slaps you on the cheek, and Jesus says, turn the other cheek. This is not some theoretical or political opponent who's far off and you never see. It's somebody who's right there. There is personal animosity, and they strike you. So he's referring to personal enemies. In the next example, he is referring to a a legal enemy. He's talking about lawsuits when he talks about cloaks and tunics. And so you have an individual in the courtroom who was trying to take you to the cleaners. And Jesus is referring to a legal enemy when he is then talking about loving your enemies. And then finally, he also has in mind political or national enemies. When Jesus talks about going the extra mile, he has in mind an invading nation, in this case the Roman nation that has crushed the people under its feet, that is present at every street corner, and that any particular moment can say, hey, you, stop whatever you're doing, carry my burden a mile, at any moment can conscript you unjustly and involuntarily for service. And in the feeling of outrage and injustice that you have at that moment towards the enemy of your nation that is oppressing you violently, Jesus says, go the extra mile. So all the kinds of enemies that we can imagine, from our personal enemies to national enemies, whoever it might be, Jesus says, love your enemy. And when he says love your enemy, he's not talking about the kind of compunction where You say, okay, I guess I love you, and and do something nice. He's talking about God's kind of love actually at work in our heart towards those who intend evil for us. He's talking about the kind of love of the Father that when we were still sinners, when we were still at enmity with God, when every inclination of our heart was against him, Christ died for us. We're talking about the unconditional love that God has shown towards us, and we are to show that towards our enemy. One might think, okay, so if I love them, maybe they'll love me back that the goal of love is to receive kindness in response, to win over our enemy. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about the unconditional love that God showed towards everyone when he sent his son. It really came out in living color for me very early on. One of my earliest memories, I think. I don't, I don't know all of the circumstances. I don't remember the name of this kid. I remember being on the block behind my house, and there was some confrontation with a kid, and he hit me in the face. And I stood up, and I turned my other cheek. And do you know what he did? He hit my other cheek. 
And I was like, wait, that's not how it's supposed to work. But that's how it works in a hateful world. You might turn the other cheek and get slapped again. It's not because we're promised to win in the end if we love the way that Jesus loved. We love the way that Jesus loved because that is how He loved us. We love the way that Jesus loved because it makes us Christ-like or shows us to be Christ-like. Jesus outlined this in the very next verse, verse 45, where He said, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God's love is general. God's love is common. We also often refer to this as common grace. In this sense, we look at the world as Jesus described in the parable of the wheat and the tares. There was a landowner. He went out and he planted seed. His enemy came and planted weeds among the seed. And they sprang up together, the wheat and the weeds. The workers said to the landowner, look, look what's happened. Let's go out there and tear up all the wheat, weeds so that the wheat can grow. And the landowner said, no, we can't do that now. It's too hard to distinguish between the two. If you tear up the one, you'll end up tearing the other. Let them grow together. The sun coming down on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. The rain coming down on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Both of them growing up together until the harvest day. That's the day at which the wheat and the weeds will be separated from each other and the weeds thrown into the fire of condemnation. The point is that right now God is gracious to all. And his desire is that all will be saved. And he is patient, waiting until the day of destruction. We're not denying the coming of the day of destruction. In fact, we should look forward to that final day. But in the meantime, we practice God's common grace towards all who are around us because we don't know. We don't know if that person who is wicked towards us today will tomorrow be a fervent follower of Jesus Christ. We cannot distinguish who to be good to and who not to be good to. And so we exercise grace and love towards all. I'm reminded of that pay it forward thing that supposedly sometimes happens. It's never happened to me, but maybe someday it will. When you're in line at the drive through at Starbucks and the person in front of you has, has paid for your drink, and then maybe you might pay for the coffee of the person behind you, and, and it goes on until somebody decides that common grace is their own grace, I suppose. Um, can you imagine if the person behind you that you just bought coffee for actually came out of a directly abusive relationship and got in line 
behind you. And I mean they are the perpetrator. They are the, you just bought coffee for an abuser. Or you bought coffee for somebody who's now going out to commit some sort of crime. You don't know. In fact, that person, because of the sin nature, is going to go from that place and commit some violation of God's holy law. And you just bought them coffee. And in fact, the person in front of you bought coffee for you when your own heart is in that condition as well. But the point is we don't get out of our car and trot to the car behind us in line and say, hey, can you tell me a little bit about yourself because I'm thinking of buying you coffee, but I don't know if you're worthy. We can't know. And when we're talking about spiritual things, in fact, we do know. We know that nobody is worthy. And so we all live by common grace. Jesus goes on to say that another reason we love our enemy, that we love in this way, is that it should stand in sharp contrast to the world around us. Verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Sometimes we congratulate ourselves for practicing ordinary decency. And by the way, I'm then reminded of the times when it's even hard to do that. But Jesus points out very explicitly here, if you only love the people who are nice to you, you're actually no better than your enemy. A friend pointed out to me, be reminded, the tax collectors and the pagans, those are two people that you pretty much had a green light to hate if you wanted to hate them. You're no better than the people you hate if you're only kind to those who are kind to you, if you only greet those who are like you. We are called to stand out in contrast as children of God by being kind towards those who are hostile by being merciful and loving to those who are undeserving. And once again, we are reminded we are in no position to judge who is deserving or who is undeserving. I can't trust my own heart to judge the motives of others and to come to a correct, a correct conclusion. And I certainly can't look forward and see how that person may eventually respond to God's grace. Jesus gives us in this passage one very concrete way that we are to love our enemies. It's really interesting. In Luke, there's actually a series of commands as to ways that we can love our enemies. Here in Matthew, it's cut down to the one thing that really comes to the heart of the matter, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is not an easy option. If you don't know what prayer is, if prayer just seems to be mumbo-jumbo words, then this is kind of meaningless. Well, okay, pray for your enemies. I can, I can say words about anybody. 
In fact, I can pray imprecatory psalms towards my enemies. But when we engage in prayer, when we understand what it is to come to the presence, can't even dare say it, the presence of the living and holy God, we recognize that this cuts to the heart of the matter because you can't hate somebody that you're praying for. You can't hate somebody that you're praying for. When we pray, we start out saying, Heavenly Father, acknowledging that He is Father of all. And we end in Jesus' name, acknowledging that apart from Christ, we, just like anybody else, have no business being there at all. Paul points out for us very explicitly this concept that there is level ground at the foot of the cross. There is level ground when we pray. We are no better than anybody else apart from Jesus Christ. He does it so clearly, Romans chapter 2, and then in Romans chapter 3. In Romans 2, he is writing to people who place themselves, he actually says, mere people, mere men, passing judgment on other people. He says, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness leads you, me, to repentance. But if we are placing ourselves in the position of judge, then because of our stubbornness and unrepentant heart, we are storing up wrath against ourselves for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give each person according to what He has done. The day of judgment is coming. God will pronounce His judgment and accomplish His judgment, but it is not our place to do it because we ourselves are merely recipients of God's mercy and kindness just like everyone else ought to be or can be. In Romans 3, he lays out why. It's the no ones and the alls that address us just as well as someone else. There's no one righteous, not even one, not me, not you, not Vladimir Putin, not anybody else. There's no one who seeks God. When Paul writes, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their feet are swift to shed blood. He is speaking of us and not just our enemies. When he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we are at the center of the target. And so when we pray for our enemy, we are praying for people who are just like us, recognizing that we are equally undeserving of God's mercy and that they are equally in need of God's mercy as we are. And so back to the imprecatory Psalms. When we pray... 
judgment and condemnation on those who by nature do not seek God. We're praying judgment and condemnation on ourselves apart from Jesus Christ. We are just as worthy of being subject to that prayer as the one whom we consider to be our personal or national or political enemy. We are not impartial and able to judge. And so we're given a different example of how to pray. In praying for our enemies, I was reminded of the book, The Hiding Place. I hope you've read it, the story of Corrie ten Boom. If you haven't, she and her family were arrested, taken to concentration camps. She watched her sister, Betsy, basically wither away and die under brutal and terrible torment. And in fact, it really is Betsy who's the hero of the story, and Corey Ten Boom would acknowledge this herself. And one of the themes is how Betsy would pray. And Corey was reminded before they had even been, dis- uh, been imprisoned when, when bombs were pouring down from the airplanes. She was reminded incredibly, Betsy began to pray for the Germans up there in those planes, caught in the fist of the giant evil at loose in their own country. Oh Lord, I, Corrie ten Boom whispered, listen to Betsy, not me, because I cannot pray for those men at all. Later on, they were talking about a collaborator, the man who actually betrayed their own family. And Corey said, Betsy, don't you feel anything? Doesn't it bother you? Oh, yes, Corey, terribly. I felt for him ever since I knew what he did. And I pray for him whenever his name comes into my mind. How dreadfully he must be suffering. And so then Corey describes the women of Barracks 28 becoming the praying heart of the vast diseased body that was Ravensbrück concentration camp, interceding for all the camp, for the guards under Betsy's prodding, as well as for the prisoners. We prayed beyond the concrete walls for the healing of Germany and of Europe and of all the world. In some ways, It has been a struggle to prepare to talk about these things, but I don't know them personally. The the petty enemies that I have perhaps experienced in my life are nothing compared to the brutality that others have experienced. But here is a woman who knew what it was to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you And she gave us the example of what that really means. Actually praying that God would have mercy on those who are causing us such pain. Even praying for their blessing. And we have to be really careful in understanding what that means. Praying for the blessing of your enemy doesn't mean praying that they will prosper in all of their ways, that they will succeed 
in the purposes that they have set before themselves. Jesus defined for us, looping back to the Sermon of the Mount, what it means to be truly blessed when he laid out for us the Beatitudes. These descriptions of what it means to truly be a redeemed citizen of heaven. When we are to pray for those who persecute us, when we are to bless and not curse, we can pray the Beatitudes for our enemies. Can you imagine if all of the Christian world united in praying that Vladimir Putin and that I, that each one of us, would be poor in spirit, recognizing the bankruptcy of our soul before the holy and living God, the fact that we have nothing within us to make us worthy of being in his presence, that we are devoid of any good apart from Jesus Christ. Oh, that the cruel leaders of our world would be poor in spirit. Oh, that they would be merciful with compassion and pity, replacing senseless and soulless disregard of life. Oh, that we would pray that they would mourn, that they would mourn for personal sin and the destruction that it has wrought in the lives not only of those who surround them, but of those whom they don't even see. And oh, that we would mourn as well for the painful consequences of sin in the lives of those who surround us. Can you imagine if the leaders of this world would hunger and thirst for righteousness, would be pure in heart, and would be peacemakers? We can pray biblically, we can pray powerfully, and we can pray lovingly for our enemies and for those who persecute us by praying the Beatitudes for them. I guess in kind of wrapping up two months of pondering and praying and things that perhaps the Lord has shown us in these scriptures, the first call when we feel that burning hatred for someone who is so very cruel, either because we see it from afar or because we experience it in our own lives. The first thing for us to do is to take our place at the foot of the cross because apart from the grace of God, there go I. And Jesus really did take those curses, the curses that we deserve, he bore upon himself on the cross the suffering that we deserve and that sometimes we long would be poured out on cruel people, that suffering was poured out on Jesus Christ to its fullest extent on the cross. He died in our place, taking what we deserve. And he rose. We celebrated it last week. 
so that we can live in the power of the resurrection with new life. And the second thing we can do when our hearts are filled is to pray for our enemies. We have all kinds of enemies. Every one of us has somebody who at some point has betrayed us in some way. We've been stabbed in the back. That negative, malicious boss has taken credit for work that we have done. Some have been bullied. Others have suffered at the hands of a slanderer. When we're confronted with our enemies, we can pray for them. Because giving them over to God is the very best thing that we can do. It's the very best thing that we can do in the sense that we no longer have to bear the burden of making sure that justice is served. God will be sure that justice is served. First of all, because it was served on Jesus Christ. But second, because the day of judgment is coming for everyone who rejects Jesus Christ. Ultimate justice matters enormously because God is just and His glory is tied inextricably with justice. So we can pray for that day. And we can long for that day. We can long along with the early church, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. It was a prayer for deliverance, but also a prayer for justice. So yes, let's take our enemies to the Lord, leaving justice in his hands, but also take our enemies to the Lord, pleading for mercy on their behalf because we ourselves need mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And the converse, if you do not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. We pray for their repentance. We pray for the miracle of their salvation, because it is no smaller a miracle than the glorious one that God accomplished at the salvation of our own souls. And it's important to practice this now because we do believe that more is coming. I don't know when, I don't know how, but some of us in some ways will experience the unpredictable and the horrible brutality of a hateful world. And that's the moment that we are going to have to be able to say, Lord, have mercy. Certainly, Lord, deliver me. Certainly, Lord, bring justice. But also, Lord, have mercy on my enemy even as you have mercy on me because this is what brings glory to your name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, first of all, even in lifting up our voices to you, we acknowledge that you are holy 
and perfect and righteous and that we do not deserve even to come into your presence. We deserve to be objects of wrath, but because of your great mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. We can be set free from hearts that would be in bondage to hatred and sin and death. We can be set free to love you, to serve you, and to no longer bear the burdens of the hatred of those who despise us, but rather to turn it over to you and to trust you in your time to do what is right and what is good and what will bring you ultimate glory. Lord, I pray for any here who even right now are just wrestling with painful horrors that may, they may have experienced in their own life, to be able to release that to you and to receive the ability to forgive and to love and to allow you to accomplish justice in your time. Lord, we continue to pray for the horrible suffering of millions of people in a country that is so very far away, but in their faces we see our own and we see those of our children and we are outraged. Father, would you pour out your mercy on those who are suffering as well as on the dark and twisted souls of those who are causing that destruction. Would you bring repentance, godly sorrow? Would you bring salvation and transformation? We pray. We pray it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.